Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in uh, Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by... Oh, this is Bob Bazanko in uh, cold and snowy Ohio. On the show, you may have noticed that we are very, very big fans of talking about all types of foreign policy. And so today, we're going to actually be uh, doing a, a bit of a deep dive into Canada's foreign policy. Uh, and to be doing that, we are joined by Pitasana Chan McGuffis. Uh, who is a uh, docu, uh, I want to say documentary filmmaker, but docu-series maker uh, based in Canada. And we're going to be talking about his docu-series, his documentary series called Truth to Powerlessness, an investigation into Canada's foreign policy. Welcome to Green and Red, Pitasana. Thank you for having me. And we're going to, we're going to get into a little bit of the background and details of your docu-series, but just to do a sort of like quick, just kind of quick opening question. Um, what do you think viewers and even listeners to this show are going to find most surprising about Canadian po- foreign policy that has co- emerged from your docuseries? I, I think uh, to, to individuals who have this image of Canada as being this benevolent, uh, peaceful country that we're all about peace and, you know, preserving, uh, you know, going into countries, deploying our peacekeepers to restore, you know, you know some sense of order. I think if, that, if that's the image that, uh, you know, people have going into this docuseries, then I think they're going to be very surprised when they find out uh, in watching this docuseries that uh, Canada has been involved in overthrowing uh, uh, democratic governments in different parts of the world. Canada has been involved in selling, uh, you know, weapons to uh, nations with horrendous human rights records. Uh, Canada has been involved in uh, uh, mining, uh, mining uh, atrocities in Latin America and in Africa, and you know, Canada has been uh, uh, our our pension plan. Uh, the Canadian pension plan, the Canadian government uh, invests Canadian citizens' pensions into some of the most rapacious and uh, uh, some of the most uh, capitalistic, intensive corporations like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon. Uh, oil uh, oil corporations, just some of the most disgusting corporations you can think of for profit. So uh, a significant thread throughout this docuseries is the role that profit plays, the role that finance plays in Canada's foreign policy. And when you see that, I think that's quite eye-opening. Yeah, I, I, Americans do have a pristine view of Canada, I think, you know, for some some legitimate reasons, guns and healthcare and things like that. But uh, and they kind of, I think, transfer that into thinking, as you said, that it's this benevolent place. Um, your series has six parts to it, which deal with different aspects of Canadian foreign policy. If you want to just kind of tell us like how you came up with, with you don't have to talk about all six, but how you came up with those different categories and, and what you think is important in them. When we had first uh, uh, begun this uh, dog series, we, we wanted to look at Canada's... Uh, foreign policy, really focusing mainly on the post-World War II era going forward. So we, we had this idea about doing like a broad scope documentary. So uh, I, I, I should uh, kind of talk about the influence behind uh, 
you know, in order to answer your question properly, I should talk about the influence that compelled me to actually do this docuseries, as I think that would better answer your question. I was born and raised in Toronto, went to school in Toronto, and uh, I, I got my uh, undergraduate uh, education at the University of Toronto, which is uh, it's, it's considered like an Ivy League school, you know, in, in Canada. It's one you know, the leading, probably the, it's, it's consistently ranked as the top number one school in Canada. So I did my undergraduate education in political science. And there you kind of learn, you know, about like Lester B. Pearson, who was Canada's uh, former prime minister, who was, uh, who, who had supposedly brought peacekeeping to the global world stage because of how he had diffused the Suez crisis and he had won Nobel Peace Prize. You kind of taught that, but then you're not until in dispossessing uh, Palestinians from their land and in imposing, uh, you know, the partition plan. You're not taught about how that should be person was a strong supporter of the Vietnam War. You're not taught about any of that. So I, well, when I did my education at the University of Toronto, my undergraduate education, you know, you get like the establishment uh, knowledge. And then I did my graduate education at uh, a, a foreign policy school called the Monk School of Global uh, Global Affairs. The Monk School of Global Affairs is a graduate foreign policy school at the University of Toronto. But the Monk School, uh, uh, it's significantly the, the, the main donor of the Monk School is a man by the name of Peter Monk, who is the founder of Bear Gold. And Bear Gold is one of the largest gold mining companies in the world. So Bear Gold's mining companies have committed horrendous atrocities in Latin America. Uh, Bear Gold hired security forces, have raped villagers. You know, Bear Gold has dispossessed, uh, you know, uh, villagers from their home, poisoned ecosystems. So horrendous atrocities. And this is the man, the, fa the, the founder of Bear Gold, who significantly funded Bear, uh, um, the monk school of which I am a graduate of. So my education is a very establishment kind of education. So what has, what then compelled me to make this docuseries, which very much challenges the establishment narrative. So I, uh, during my um, studies, I had stumbled upon uh, on my social media feed. One day I was, I was just sitting waiting at the airport. I was scrolling through my social media feed. I come across an article which says uh, the myth of Lester B. Pearson. And so I, I just curiosity, I click on it. And it talks about how Lester B. Pearson was a supporter of the Vietnam War and how he was instrumental in dispossessing Palestinians from their land and imposing this partition plan. And so it's, uh, and, and it just kind of blowed my mind. It was by a writer by the name of Eves Engler, who's a, a strong critic of Candace foreign policy. He's been dubbed the Canadian Noam Chomsky. So that was like a, a revelation to me. And then I stumbled upon his works uh, he, he had written a critical book called The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, which is like a collection of just Candace atrocities they've committed all over the world, you know, overthrowing democracies, supporting fascism, you know, mining atrocities, uh, selling weapons to horrendous human rights abusing nations, just all these kind of atrocities I can think of. It's a, it's a significant work. And when I read that book, it just kind of blew my mind, uh, just blew my mind right open. And uh, so when I was going going uh, to your question when i was thinking about how uh, i should uh, go about this docuseries i'd kind of fleshed it out 
using the material, the, the, the material that Eve Zengler had significantly investigated, looking at uh, Canada's support for fascism in, uh, during, the, uh, during World War II. Uh, that's the first episode. It kind of deals with Canada's support for fascism during World War II. And it deals with uh, Canada emerging out of World War II as a significant power as uh, you know, one of like the fourth largest uh, power in, in many respects in terms of our navy and uh, uh, you know Canada's military. So it it talks about Canada's role in NATO, how Canada's uh, prime minister at the time uh, uh, was a significant uh, uh, advocate of this North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it talks about how Canada within NATO was. Uh, uh, supporting oppressing uh, uh, independence movements that were happening in the developing world. And that's the first episode. And then we kind of get into the role of uh, finance. We devote an entire episode to that. And, uh, and through that episode, we talk about all these different issues. Like uh, we talk about uh, Canada's support for Saudi Arabia during their intervention and atrocity in uh, uh, in Yemen, and we talk about East Timor. And throughout the entire docu-series, it's, it's important to point out that we interview the politicians as the politicians responsible, Canadian politicians responsible for formulating and advocating Canada's foreign policy and, and, and drafting Canada's foreign policy. We get the establishment line. So when, we, when we're interviewing, for instance, in episode three, uh, and one of the main issues we wanted to touch upon was Israel-Palestine and just Canada's role in that, just because it's such a huge and relevant issue, and it will be for many more years to come. We wanted to interview uh, Canadian politicians uh, that were knowledgeable about, about this issue, so we interviewed Canada's ambassador to Israel uh, during the Stephen Harper government, and we also interviewed the UN, uh, the UN uh, rapporteur uh, on Palestine as well. So, so we interviewed all... Uh, uh, you know, interview the politicians that were responsible for formulating and advocating Canada's foreign policy, as well as dissidents and academics challenging Canada's foreign policies. So you get both sides of, of every, in, in every episode, you get both sides of every issue. So you get the establishment line and you get individuals challenging that line. And I'm kind of uh, curious, did you get any from the, from the, from the po establishment, from the politicians, and I think there's a former Canadian defense minister that you interview, but I'm wondering if you got any sort of feedback about them being juxtaposed next to um, Chomsky and Eve Zingler and other, other dissidents, or, or if you, since the docu-series has come out, have you heard from them? Uh, so I've, 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 I've sent it to the politicians. I, I haven't heard, unfortunately, when, uh, the, the, when the dog series was released, the defense minister that we interviewed, he had died about two days after. So, and, and I was aware that he was in, in ill health at the time. So that's why I was so urgent that we had to interview him. And there's a, there's a very long and interesting story about that, which I'd like, which I, I hope I could get into, but uh, to add, to stay to the topic of your question, uh, when we sent it to the politicians, most of them actually did not respond so some of them were like, oh, thank you for sending this, but there's no uh, real response. Um, uh, you know, we had uh, interviewed James Bissett, who was uh, Canada's ambassador to Yugoslavia. And we, uh, we explore NATO, Canada's involvement in NATO. So we talk about Canada's involvement in Yugoslavia, Canada's involvement in Afghanistan, 
Candidate Bauman in Libya, and we and we interviewed the relevant politicians that were responsible for Canada's interventions in in all these uh, different uh, theaters of conflict. And so when we interviewed James Bissett, Canada's ambassador to Yugoslavia, he was uh, he was a very rare breed in the sense that he was part of the establishment, but he broke away from the establishment. And he became a dissident. And he was extremely critical of Canada's involvement in the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999, to the point where he actually called Canada's prime minister at the time, Jean Chrétien, a war criminal. And uh, so he, when I sent it to him, he was, uh, you know, he was like, oh, this is great work and this should be taught in, uh, in high schools all across the country. So some politicians that were kind of critical, they responded receptively to the establishment politicians. They, we didn't get any response from them at all. Uh, you mentioned um, a, a couple kind of more specifics, but you said you talked about NATO, um, but you also talk about, you know, like uh, Canada's role in, in promoting and, and supporting apartheid in, in Iraq and Latin America. Do you want to just kind of talk a little, because again, you know, we're dealing in the United States and it sounds like Canada too, with, with really large misconceptions about uh, the Canadian role in global politics. Yeah, so I, I, uh, I talk about Canada's role in, in supporting uh, apartheid in, in Israel and South Africa. So in that episode, we, uh, we interviewed, uh, we, we start, uh, the common thread in that episode is Canada being this um, settler colonial country and Israel being a settler colonial country and South Africa being the settler colonial country. That's, that's the bond that kind of, kind of, uh, is responsible for this uh, support among these nations where in the uh, segment about South Africa, we talk about how uh, Linda Freeman, a, his a Canadian historian who has written extensively about Canada's relationship with uh, apartheid South Africa, she talks about how white minority South African officials came to Canada and they looked at uh, what are called uh, Canadian residential schools and Canadian residential schools are schools where Indigenous children were stripped away from their uh, parents by the Canadian government, and they were forcibly housed, uh, and uh, they had Christianity imposed on them, and they had a Western education system imposed on them. Their language was wiped out. The Indigenous children's language was wiped out. They couldn't speak their language. They couldn't speak their culture. They couldn't, they could, they couldn't uh, embrace their culture. They couldn't embrace their traditions. And this, this system, this residential school system was in place in Canada until 1996, uh, very recent. And so South African officials, they came to Canada, they saw our residential school system and they used that as a model for building the apartheid state in South Africa so that they could subjugate the indigenous black population. And so there you see that uh, settler colonial uh, connection and. Uh, uh, it's it's kind of uh, portrayed in Canada as as you know Canada being opposed to apartheid South Africa, but uh, you know because we had supported South Africa's expulsion from the Commonwealth, but that was a very strategic move because India threatened to leave the Commonwealth if South Africa remained. So, for the purposes of preserving the Commonwealth, Canada for that one instance came out and supported South Africa's expulsion. Meanwhile. Canada still had a free trade agreement with apartheid South Africa, was still selling weapons to apartheid South Africa. Ca uh, Canadian companies were still using uh, black South Africans as a cheap labor force uh, because it was very profitable to do so. So this was 
This was right up until the 1980s. Uh, the Canada was uh, strongly supporting South Africa at international institutions. There was one instance where Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, had given uh, South Africa, apartheid South Africa, the needed votes at the IMF so that South Africa can get it uh, alone. Uh, so Canada was supporting apartheid South Africa throughout. And um, in the case of Israel, you know, we, we speak with the uh, Canada's ambassador to Israel. We speak with the UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine. We speak with uh, uh, individuals that are very critical of Canadian activists like Dimitri Lascaris. Uh, we speak with Canadian politicians like Helene Leverdier. Uh, and in the case of Canada's support for is uh, Israel, uh, it, it kind of begins significantly with Lester B. Pearson, Canada's so-called peacekeeping prime minister. You know, he goes to the UN and he uh, strongly embraces the partition plan. He, he is uh, very instrumental in getting this partition plan whereby uh, the Jews at the time uh, uh, in Palestine, they constituted less than 10% of the population, but they wanted more than 50, they got more than 50% of the land, which was, which is insane. And so he kind of destroyed any form of binational solution that could have come about. And, uh, you know, the indigenous, uh, the Palestinians, the Arab nations were all opposed to this. They couldn't understand why white Western nations were, were trying to impose a solution to their problem. And uh, so candidates uh, supported uh, uh, partitioning Palestine and uh, dispossessing the Palestinians. And um, the interesting thing about, Can and we explore how, the, the, at the United Nations, Canada consistently, consistently, uh, right up to the present time, uh, votes against resolutions that are critical of Israel's settlement building, uh, votes against resolutions which over 100 countries routinely every single year uh, support that are calling for a two-state solution, that are calling for a two-state solution along the pre-June 67 lines. And in the case of uh, Canada's support for Israel, it, you know, it's uh, it, there's, there's like a comparison that's made between apartheid South Africa and Israel. But in the case of what's going on with the Palestinians, it's actually much worse than what's going on, than what occurred in apartheid South Africa. Because in the case of apartheid South Africa, uh, the black majority was very useful to the uh, white minority because the black majority, they were a very good labor force, which you know Canadian companies invested in. In the case of the Palestinians, they're completely useless to Israel. They, they just want to get rid of them. They don't, you know, it's so on that case, it's, there's, there, you know, people have asserted it's actually been much worse than apartheid, the system that's uh, going on in the, in the occupied territories right now. So that's kind of what we explore uh, in that episode about uh, apartheid. One other question, you know, Canada is a member of NATO uh, and NATO is very much like a US led alliance. And I'm wondering if you could just actually touch on Canada's role within NATO, and then we'll probably get into a little bit of a bigger question about Canada's relationship with the U.S. But if you could maybe just start with their role within NATO. Canada was a founding member of NATO, and uh, as a member of NATO, Canada during the Cold War was instrumental, as we discussed in the docuseries, and, and actually the first episode was instrumental in suppressing uh, Indigenous uh, 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 independence movements uh, in the Congo, for instance, uh, 
you know, was uh, sending arms and supplying arms to uh, s suppress uh, uh, Patrice Lumumba. Canada actually played a role in assassinating Patrice Lumumba, the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo their first uh, democratic leader was Patrice Lumumba, and he had called for uh, the resources of the Congo, which is resource-wise, the Congo is the richest nation on the planet, still is today. And Patrice Lumumba had called for those resources to be used to benefit the people, the Black Congolese people, after they had been brutally subjugated by the Belgians. So uh, Canada was very instrumental in his assassination. Canada, uh, uh, you know, uh, supported uh, numerous movements uh, 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 to, um, to suppress uh, uh, independence movements. In terms of India, Canada uh, uh, said that India isn't ready to be an independent nation. Uh, in Algeria, Canada uh, through NATO had uh, uh, um, sub uh, supplied weapons uh, to uh, uh, suppress the independence movement there. Uh, Canada also played a horrendous role in the, the, Mao, the Mao Mao revolt. So that was the Cold War role of, of Canada and NATO. Uh, getting out of the Cold War, Canada begins, uh, their first notable intervention is uh, in Yugoslavia in 1999, where um, Canada, uh, uh, there was a pretext that uh, Milosevic was this uh, notorious mass murderer and he was murdering you know Albanians and uh, we have to we have to intervene in order to in order to solve this and you know, it, it, after the end of the cold war there was this concern this worry about what's going to happen uh you know with NATO you know now that the Soviet Union has collapsed you know uh, there was an agreement made which we actually, uh, which uh, James Bissett mentions in the docuseries, there's an agreement made between Gorbachev uh, and George H.W. Bush that NATO would not expand one inch to the east in exchange for a unified uh, Germany, which was an enormous concession on the part of Russia, given how, uh, you know, Germany had devastated Russia and the world wars and the, in both world wars. So it was an enormous concession. Uh, but... Uh, Clinton came into office and immediately violated that and it would continue to expand. So the, the bombing of Yugoslavia had provided a, a significant purpose for NATO, a renewed purpose. So Canada had used its fighter jets to, uh, uh, you know, bomb uh, bridges, you know, uh, uh, bomb civilian infrastructure. Uh, we bombed a, a news outlet, um, uh, a state-run news outlet that was reporting about uh, the atrocities. Uh, so Canada committed these uh, horrendous human rights abuses, violations of war, uh, uh, violations of the laws of war. And uh, then after the, uh, uh, the Yugoslavia, the 1999 war, the 78 day bombing is finished. There's once again, this question about, all right, what are we gonna do with NATO? Then comes in 9-11, which we also discuss in our, in our docuseries. So uh, then there's a renewed purpose for NATO. Uh, the United States is, a, uh, is, is attacked. So, uh, 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 you know, NATO's uh, article, article five is invoked and the NATO members uh, 
uh, all come together and they decided to intervene in Afghanistan. And so we interview Bill Graham, who was Canada's Minister of Defense and Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, uh, as well as briefly a leader of opposition in Canada, uh, is a significantly powerful individual. And you know, I knew him personally because he was also a professor of mine. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and so he, we interviewed him, and we also interviewed the minister of uh, a minister of defense, David Pratt, at the time as well. And we get their establishment line on Canada's involvement in the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia. How uh, you know uh, we wanted to get we wanted to get um, Bin Laden uh, in Afghanistan, and we also uh, wanted to build Afghanistan and uh, uh, give women education and, you know, promote human rights. So that was the establishment narrative. But we also then interview people like Noam Chomsky. We interview academics like Justin Pordor. We interview even an, a, a Canadian soldier that went into Afghanistan and uh, uh, during Canada's uh, involvement in Kandahar, which was really Canada's most significant like military operation since our involvement uh, in the Korean War. So that uh, that was a significant military intervention on Canada's part. And uh, basically what this the uh, episode on Canada's involvement in Afghanistan exposes is that Canada, uh, you know, through its military intervention was uh, imposing a, a, a form of terrorism that was inhibiting uh, Canada's supposed goals of, uh, you know, uh, education and, uh, you know, bringing about, uh, you know, democracy or whatever, because, you know, you had Canada's, uh, you, know, you know, Canada terrorizing the Afghanistan population through uh, the deployment of its uh, military and breaking down uh, the doors of villagers. And, and then you have Canada trying to impose uh, uh, and uh, an education system and trying to bring in girls into the workforce. Meanwhile, not respecting the traditions of the villagers that were kind of averse to this Western Westernized way of life. And, and we explore all these issues. And uh, uh, at, at one point I kind of asked uh, uh, Bill Graham, uh, the defense minister and the foreign affairs minister, Bill Graham, I asked him, you know, given that tens of thousands of refugees uh, were created as a result of Canada's, uh, partly as a result of Canada's intervention, uh, thousands of people killed. Uh, was, it, was it a mistake for Canada to have intervened? And he kind of just pauses a little bit and he says, um, you know, I, I don't know how to answer your question. And it, uh, that was the, that was the uh, only kind of moment where he, seem to have kind of some regret. And then we go on to talk about Canada's involvement in Libya in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in the fifth episode, where we uh, interview Lawrence Wilkerson, who was chief of staff to Colin Powell. And uh, uh, we also interview uh, 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 Scott Taylor as well, who was a, a former Canadian soldier and uh, who was a critic of Canada's military interventions. And uh, what they expose is how uh, horrendous 
it was for Canada and the West to have intervened in Libya and how it has created a slave trade in Libya, has created all these refugees, which Gaddafi was, was kind of, you know, uh, keeping a very tight lock on. And, you know, uh, uh, Libya under Gaddafi, it was, uh, Lawrence Torkerson says, it was doing as well or even better than Israel was as far as a, uh, you know, as far as education and healthcare and providing the welfare and benefits for people is the most uh, prosperous uh, country in the region. So uh, Gaddafi was using his resources to benefit the people. And this was uh, in strongly in opposition to uh, the interests of Western governments. And, uh, you know, he he wanted to have his uh, currency traded in in gold and, uh, and not dollars. And uh, there was there's some significant truth to that, and we talk about how Canada was instrumental in in defeating a uh, initiative brought about by South Africa to have a peaceful resolution uh, to the conflict, which Gaddafi had agreed to. Gaddafi had agreed to um, allow the rebels to control a significant territory of Libya, and he would then control uh, another portion of Libya. And this was agreed to by Gaddafi. Uh, Canada's uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister uh, uh, Baird uh, comes in and he says, uh, are you guys out of your mind? He says this to the Libyan rebels who've also uh, um, expressed agreement with the South African Peace Initiative. Are you guys out of your mind? No, we're going in to get Gaddafi to kill him. We're going for the whole of Libya. There's not going to be any acceptance of any South African peace deal. So Canada uh, was very instrumental in in all of these uh, conflicts, uh, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, and Libya. And we also touch on uh, the current consequence of, of these uh, horrendous conflicts, which is uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, during the fifth episode, we, we briefly touch on that, where we uh, actually go to the, the Monk School. The Monk School is holding a debate with John Mearsheimer, uh, uh, for a, a, a leading proponent of the uh, realist uh, theory of international relations, Stephen Walt, and also a a Polish politician and uh, a significant individual, uh, leading individual within the U.S. State Department. They're all having a debate. And uh, the main issue is whether uh, Russia's geopolitical interests should be taken into consideration uh, in looking at this conflict. And uh, we, we, we show you excerpts of that debate, and it's quite revealing. We also Throughout the doctors, we also go and talk to individual Canadians and we ask them, what are your thoughts on, you know, Canada's foreign policy in Afghanistan and, and uh, so on and so forth. And many of them are completely clueless. And we and as far as this Ukraine-Russia segment, we ask them, you know, what are the, why do you think Russia has invaded Ukraine? And uh, a lot of them say, oh, you know, it's because uh, Putin wants to resurrect the Soviet Union <laughs> again. And, uh, and uh, uh, but that's completely that's what the media is telling them. And uh that's another thread that we have uh, where we talk about the media and their role in uh, uh, refusing to take a critical look at Canada's foreign policy, thereby you know, uh, imposing uh, this notion, this view on the population that Canada's is a benevolent, peacekeeping nation. And uh, when we're talking about uh, Russia, Ukraine, we really expose, uh, you know, John Mearsheimer really talks about how it was, in fact, NATO's expansion eastward, right up to Russia's border, that has resulted in Putin uh, feeling threatened. It was uh, the fact that 
the U.S. has repeatedly tried to get Ukraine into NATO in 2008, most notably George Bush, George W. Bush uh, tells, uh, you know, invites Ukraine uh, to join uh, NATO. And at the time that was rebuffed by Germany and, and France. And, uh, and, and at the time, you know, George Bush had said, uh, sorry, uh, Vladimir Putin had said to George Bush, you know, if you're insistent on Ukraine joining NATO, we're going to take Crimea. And uh, but the U.S. just ignored that. So we kind of foreshadow this, uh, uh, you know, this conflict. There's a, there's an interesting scene right after uh, we discussed the Yugoslavia conflict. James Bissett, he foreshadows the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which is going to happen. He says if uh, if the West continues its provocative actions, you know, we're looking at nuclear war here. And that uh, right now we're very, you know, uh, we're we're very uh, at a significant uh, risk of having nuclear war. So long clock, as the, the clock is getting closer to the the midnight, right on the nuclear compound. That's right. Yeah, the doomsday clock. Yeah. Hey, folks! You're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like Johnny Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies, and we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Azenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcasts. And uh, we talk to really cool people and uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And uh, um, you know, if you really like us, and if you have a a, a little uh, extra change around um, jingles or folds, uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. You're uh, out there listening or watching or both to uh, Green and Red Podcast. And we're having right now, we're having a really fascinating discussion with uh, Itasana Sanmugathas who has the... Uh, producer and director, I guess both, of uh, Truth to the Powerless, an investigation of Canada's foreign policy, which is a six-part documentary series. Um, to kind of follow up on that, this is a little bit of a broader question. Uh, as somebody who studies U.S. foreign policy, I'm motivated by kind of 50, 60 years ago, a group of scholars, the new left, I'm sure you're familiar with that, which really kind of changes the debate in the U.S. from one that said, you know, the U.S. is idealistic and it's trying to bring democracy or, you know, the U.S. is realistic. And, and, and the new left put you know, in front, the idea of kind of power and, and material interests. And obviously, Canada isn't trying to gain global hegemony like the U.S., but I just wondered kind of what its interest and motives were. Um, and maybe along with that, you could talk a little bit about its military budgets and weapon sales and things like that. It's, it's often talked about Canada's foreign policy to those that are kind of like critical of it. They just kind of dismiss Canada's foreign policy of Canada just being a puppet of the United States. But I think that's a very misleading way to look at Canada's foreign policy because 
because it is true, um, Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, who was also prime minister, once said, comparing the U.S.-Canada relationship, he said that the United States is like the elephant and Canada is like a mouse. Any Every time the elephant stops, the mouse, it feels every, you know, the reverberations can feel every twitch. So, and that's, that's characterizing Canada's relationship with the United States. Yes, we are very interconnected, but it's also very important to acknowledge that Canada has its own independent objectives, its own independent goals. So, for instance, when, uh, you know, Canadian mining companies, when they're going into Latin America and when they're uh, extracting resources and poisoning uh, uh, ecosystem, poisoning the ecosystem and, uh, and uh, expelling villagers, Canada's doing this. Uh, the Canadian government is allowing this without any accountability for mining companies like Bear Gold. The reason is because it's extremely profitable. It's extremely lucrative to do that. And the reason why Canada, for instance, in our uh, episode on Canada's uh, involvement in Saudi Arabia and uh, selling arms to Saudi Arabia, uh, while Saudi Arabia is using these arms there's been allegations, credible allegations, that Saudi Arabia is using Canadian arms in its involvement, its bombing, and its assault on Yemen. And so we interviewed Canada's last ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Dennis Horwak, and we asked him, you know, there are these credible allegations uh, that Canada, Canada's arms have been used to uh, assault uh, the uh, population of Yemen by Saudi Arabia. And this, the Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia just says, you know, does Canada want an arms industry or does it not? It, that's his that's his response. And uh, he, he, what he's saying is that the, the Canadian arms industry, it's, it's an extremely lucrative. It, it provides a, a, a significant number of jobs. And we actually counter that assertion. We interview Richard Sanders, who is uh, who is part of the coalition to oppose the arms trade. And we interview uh, Richard Sanders, who's an ant, who's a strong opponent of Canada's arms industry. And Richard Sanders says, well, that's actually not true because it will be more beneficial. You, you would create more jobs if uh, the, the uh, Canadian government had invested its money in the public sector in, uh, in uh, building roads, education, healthcare, housing. You'd create more jobs that way than you would through the arms industry. And uh, we put up statistics to support this in the docu-series as well. So yes, Canada is significantly support close to the United States. Yes, there's a strong bond there, but Canada does have its own personal interests. And the United States isn't telling Canada to you know, sell arms to the, the Saudis. We're doing that because it's very profitable. It's very lucrative. It's a, you know, it's a, you, know you generate a significant number of jobs. You know, Canada isn't, the United States isn't telling Canada uh, to go into Latin America you know, with your mining companies and uh, devastate the villages and extract all those resources you can. We're doing that because it's very lucrative. It's a very profit maximizing initiative. You know, Canada, the United States isn't telling Canada to support Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories, sell Israel arms, defend Israel tooth and nail. We're doing that because we're a settler colonial nation and we have a bond with Israel because both countries have, were founded on the expulsion of the indigenous population. So uh, yes, there is a bond between Canada and the United States, but a lot of these initiatives, Canada's doing it because it's in our interests as far as capital, as far as profit is concerned. It's in the interest of the 1% which Canada supports to do that.
there's a there's an Australian academic named Clinton Fernandez who is actually a, a friend and comrade of, of the podcast. We've had him on several times, and he actually has just recently published a book called Sub Imperial Power, where he's arguing that Australia is plays the role of a, as a sub imperial power of first the British Empire and then uh, the American Empire, where they are like particularly they're policing a region. And in Australia's case, it's very much developing around like what's going on between China and Taiwan. It's it's with around East Timor and and uh, uh, you know the relationship with Indonesia. And I'm wondering if you see any sort of parallels where Canada plays this role as a sub-imperial power for the U.S. and and or or and or the or the British in in years past. There are instances where the United States relies on Canada as a junior partner to kind of do its dirty work. So uh, one instance of this is uh, Canada's intervention in Haiti to overthrow. Uh, the democratic elected leader, uh, the Haiti's first democratically elected leader, Jean Bertrand Aristide. Uh, so Canada, we're a francophone, French-speaking uh, country. We have a significant French-speaking population. So, uh, in terms of Haiti, uh, Haiti had uh, in the early uh, 1990, 1991, had uh, elected uh, its first uh, democratic uh, leader. He was his name was Jean Bertrand Aristide. He was a Catholic priest. He was uh, he, he was an individual who. Uh, uh, who was an, a proponent of a, liber, a liberation uh, a theology, and uh, he had strong resonance among the poor people of Haiti, and uh, he had campaigned on uh, on, alle on alleviating the miseries of the poor, so that the poor people of Haiti can live some have some semblance of dignity. He was not this radical socialist or anything like that. He just wanted to improve the Haitians' lifestyle. Just just a little bit, just incrementally, so they can just have some semblance of dignity, because uh, Haiti had uh, uh, Haiti was the first black-led uh, uh, black republic that had uh, expelled its colonial uh, occupier France, and in return for expelling its colonial occupier France, Haiti had to uh, pay uh, France for the property that. France lost. The property that France lost was the Black Haitian population. The Black Haitian population, uh, they were, the, the, they were uh, slaves to France. So uh, France had imposed this huge multi-million dollar debt on Haiti, which it took Haiti decades and decades and decades to pay back. And that was a core reason for uh, Haiti's impoverishment. And the United States was consistently throughout the Cold War uh, opposing any leader that would uh, rise and would advocate for the rights of the poor. In comes Jean Bertrand Aristide, 1990, uh, 1990-1991. Uh, he completely takes the United States by surprise. The United States has this uh, Western-backed politician running for the election, uh, uh, Wall Street-backed Mark, Mark uh, Bazin, uh, the United States isn't even paying attention to the election, uh, completely underestimates the election and, and, and turns out Jean Bertrand Aristide wins overwhelmingly. He's elected leader. Uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide, he disbands the uh, ruthless Haitian military that's uh, been instrumental, trained by the United States to oppress dissent in Haiti. Uh, he disbands the military. 
And shortly thereafter, he's throw he's overthrown, and Jean Breton Aristide flees to the to the United States. Jean Breton Aristide then comes back to the uh, to Haiti in return, acceding to U.S. demands to impose neoliberal programs that would devastate the Haitian poor. Jean second term in his first and second term, really, uh, uh, his party called the Lavalas Party. They, they build more schools uh, during the time that his party's in power than in any other time in Haitian history. More schools are built, uh, an increase in literacy rates. Uh, uh, there are thousands of democratically elected officials statewide, nationwide. This happens under the Lavalas party, Jean Breton Aristide's party. So in his second term in 2000, uh, which is from 2000, to 2004, when, when he's overthrown. Uh, during that time, his second term, Jean Breton Aristide, he goes to, he makes a public appeal and he calls for France to pay reparations to Haiti because of the billion, uh, the millions upon millions of dollars that Haiti had to pay France. France is then outraged about this. And now we know from the New York Times, there, there's a recent publication on the New York Times that they, uh, a French diplomats have said, we were relieved that, that the United States and its allies, Canada, uh, they had played a role in removing Aristide because this took the pressure off from us having to pay reparations because this was a sitting president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, telling uh, France, pay us reparations for uh, this uh, ridiculous debt, debt that you imposed on us. Jean-Bertrand Aristide, he also lifted, increased the minimum wage just slightly but he did it, uh, it in a manner that angered uh, foreign where uh, uses black uses black Haitians to make uh, uh, t-shirts in sweatshops. And so when Aristide had increased the minimum wage, this angered uh, Gildan Activewear. So the reason why uh, so reason why the Bush administration, Colin Powell mainly was so adamant that uh, Aristide had to go is because Aristide was setting a bad example. When you have somebody like uh, Aristide who uh, is a leader of a poor country and he significantly improves uh, the, uh, the literacy rate, the, 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 uh, the, the maternity rate, he significantly combats the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic in that country. Uh, he, uh, builds more schools, which allows children to become educated. Uh, when you have a leader in a poor country that sets that kind of example, it then will create a domino effect that will then affect some allies that the United, that the United States and Canada really cares about, like Mexico, for instance. It creates this domino across Latin America. Stop to that, you have to contain the virus. So the United States needed help in doing this. So the United States asked Canada, which has a significant French-speaking pop, uh, population, and uh, Bill Graham, who was the Minister of Foreign Affairs at the time, and David Pratt, with who we interview, uh, uh, they provide assistance to Colin Powell, to the United States, uh, Canadian peacekeeping forces, secure the airport in which Jean Breton Aristide is, uh, is taken, kidnapped against his will, 
secured, uh, taken onto a plane that's uh, been secured, uh, the airport's been secured by Canadian forces and uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide and his wife, they don't know where they're going there uh, and they get dumped in the Central African Republic. A UN peacekeeping force comes in, brutally tortures and represses the population. The Lavalas party, all the elected officials, thousands of officials were just wiped out. And there was this, uh, uh, there was this uh, US backed leader that had taken over, uh, Gerald, uh, Gerald Lertortu. Uh, and he, he had uh, then resumed this uh, uh, US Western led repression of Haiti. And so when I interview uh, Bill Graham, I'm, when we were interviewing all these politicians for a docuseries, we never actually challenged any of the politicians we interviewed. We just interviewed them, wanted to get the establishment line. And then we would at, interview the activists and academics who would then challenge uh, the establishment line. One exception to that was Bill Graham. I wanted to challenge Bill Graham on Haiti because uh, Bill Graham was, you know, uh, Bill Graham was a huge figure in Canadian politics. Bill Graham had taken a lead on uh, Canada's involvement in Yugoslavia. Bill Graham had taken a, a lead on Canada's supposed non-intervention in Iraq. Canada actually did support the 2003 Iraq war, although we said, we, we claimed we did not, we exposed this in the docuseries as well. Bill Graham was the de decision maker in that area. Bill Graham then uh, was a decision maker in Canada's involvement in Afghanistan and also Canada's involvement in Haiti to overthrow a democratic elected leader. So in all these areas, Bill Graham was kind of like Forrest Gump in, in, in all these important areas. He was just, he just happened to be there. So he, he was a significant, powerful individual. And I, the reason I felt that, you know, nobody, uh, I, he was, he was an, he was an ill health we had tried to get an interview with him for like a year and a half. And uh, uh, I, I was aware he was in ill, in ill health and I figured that this would be the last time anybody would get a chance to challenge Bill Graham on his record uh, on Haiti. We also challenged his record on Afghanistan as well as I previously mentioned. But when, when I, when I, you know, uh, uh, when I, uh, you know, significantly challenged Bill Graham on his, uh, on Canada's intervention in, in Haiti, uh, you know, he, he characterized Aristide as a thug and a dictator. And he said that what Canada was doing was a good thing because uh, uh, we were restoring peace and stability. There was no bloodshed. You know, uh, 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 Bill Graham consistently uh, repeated that, that Canada's intervention was completely benevolent. When I when I told uh, uh, Bill Graham, you know, uh, uh, what about the fact that France had imposed this huge debt on Haiti? And then he, he was totally dismissive of that, would not, uh, you know, was, he was like, oh, I don't know about France. I don't know about any of that. He, he completely refused to acknowledge uh, any alternative reality from the one that he believed, which was that Aristide was a thug, a dictator. We had to go in, we had to get him out. Uh, that, was, that was Bill Graham's... Uh, uh, reality that was his frame of mind. So, the the entire premise of this docu series is that you have to. The very first scene of the docu series, Noam Chomsky, who we interview, is looking right into the camera and he says, "The people in power already know the truth. 
It's the powerless that don't. When I interviewed Bill Graham, uh, he was the first person where I looked at him and it seemed like he genuinely believed everything he was saying. When the interview was finished with Bill Graham, uh, the cameras are off and he's just kind of exasperated because I grill him so much on, on, on Haiti. You know, I, I, I talk, you know, when I was interviewing him, you know, I talked about the Aristide had, uh, you know, significantly improved the, the uh, minimum wage, had, uh, had sorry, improved the, the, the health, the health care, the, the lifestyle of the Haitian people, uh, you know, combating HIV, the AIDS epidemic, increasing the adult literacy rate, slightly increasing the minimum wage. You know, Aristide would say, I did a lot of good things for the Haitian people. How could you call me a thug and a dictator? And the Bill Graham kind of says, well, you know, uh, well, I'm not saying it. I mean, I'm saying it, but I'm saying it because that's what Haitians in, in uh, Haitians have told me. And, and, and so that's this narrow view that he has. When the cameras are turned off, he's kind of exasperated. And he says, do you have any idea how hard it was for us to get him out of the country? Like he's saying this as if, we did Aristide a favor. You know, we didn't kill you, but we got you out. You know, and I was just, and it just kind of, yeah, just kind of boggled me for a little bit. Another instance where Canada was like a junior ally to the United States is in uh, the U.S. intervention in Iraq in 2003. So we uh, we interviewed Canada's ambassador to the United States. We interviewed uh, uh, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Canada's ambassador to the United States is. Uh, Michael Kurgan, Canada's ambassador uh, to the United uh, to the United Nations, is Paul Heinbecker. We interview the defense minister as well, David Pratt and Bill Graham, and we get all these. Uh, the, we get the establishment perspective, which is that Canada opposed the 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 U.S. war in Iraq. Our our establishment uh, our line was that you do you do not have a U.N. Security Council resolution, so because of that. We can't go into uh, Iraq. That was Canada's line, but secretly, covertly, Canada. We exposed in the doc, in the docu series. Canada was uh, 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 Canada had major generals, three major generals, taking coordinating uh, the the U.S. Uh, bombing missions in in Iraq. Canada was providing weapons to the United States, which were being used in Iraq. Canada was allowing. Uh, 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 U.S. aircraft to enter into Canadian airspace en route to a bomb Iraq. So we were uh, we were providing air support. So Canada, the United States could not have launched a successful, uh, as successful assault on Iraq had it not been for the covert Canadian support. And uh, uh, in in the docuseries, we talk about how Canada is boasting uh, in the United in the United States. Uh, is privately boasting to U.S. officials of, about how Canada is doing the most to contribute to the U.S. invasion in Iraq outside of the public uh, coalition of the willing nations, outside of the coalition of the willing nations, Canada is privately boasting to the United States, we're doing so much to help you. So that, that's just another instance of uh, the United, Canada acting as a junior ally to the United States. Um, yeah, we're getting close to, to time here. So uh, again, thanks so much for being uh, here with us on Green and Red. And I told you a minute ago, I was going to ask you about Ukraine, but I've actually changed. And uh, I'm just curious, like what your reception, what the reception has been, uh, distribution reception to this docuseries? Have, have a lot of people seen it? How can people see it? And what kind of response have you gotten? Is this kind of uh, informative and eye-opening to a lot of people? 
Yeah, uh, so uh, this docuseries is free to watch for anybody who wants to watch it anywhere around the world. We've we've put it out free. The reason being is we want this docuseries to be like an educational resource for people who are genuinely curious about Canada's foreign policy but don't know where to look, don't know where to start, don't have the time to research. People are very busy, 40-hour you know, work weeks, you know, people, people don't have time. So this, this docuseries, it's a free resource, truthtothepowerless.com. That's where you can go to watch uh, the six-part docuseries. And the reception we've got from this docuseries has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, uh, a lot of people have uh, uh, been kind of amazed at how we've been able to put this docuseries together, getting the politicians' establishment perspective as well as the, the dissident the activist academic perspective. And uh, a lot of people have characterized this docuseries as being very uh, uh, groundbreaking, informative. There's been no other docuseries in Canadian history that interviews both the politicians as well as the dissidents and academics. This is the first in Canada's uh, history that has done this. And a lot of people have praised us for that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, I, I, study U.S. foreign policy, allegedly an expert, and, and there's just so much um, in this that I've learned. Uh, so it's, I would, you know, recommend it, certainly, uh, especially because, like, you know, we started by saying here in the United States, we have this really particular view of Canada. It's, it's really, a, you know, kind of on a pedestal, and it's a very pristine and benevolent, and, and the reality is that it is uh, kind of like any other big country with capitalist interest and energy interests and weapon sales and everything else. So thanks so much. This is really great. My, my final question was, you, and you've touched on some of it already, but just the, the sort of like corporate angle, you know, you've talked about Barrick Gold a lot and, you know, they're, they're involved in, in mining projects, particularly in the, in the global majority countries, like, like in Africa and Latin America. Um, but then the question I wanted to ask you is that also the, the Canadian finance sector is like very involved in funding, you know, a lot of fossil fuel projects, both in Canada and then other parts of the world. Um, you know, uh, banks like Royal Bank of Canada and Toronto Dominion. And I'm just wondering if there, if, if you had looked into any sort of like connection between some of the, um, what's it called, Bay Street, I think is the Wall Street of, of Toronto, of, of Canada. I wonder if you've been seeing any sort of connection between Bay Street and some of, you know, some of the foreign policy adventures. Um, you know, one of the most revealing things that, that I, that I had, learned during my investigation into Canada's foreign policy is how uh, the, the Canadian the, the Canadian pension plan, uh, the Canadian uh, citizens, our pension money is being used uh, to invest in some of the most uh, uh, rapacious, profit-maximizing, uh, uh, horrendous uh, companies like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, uh, like oil, com you know, oil companies, uh, and all these uh, 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 you know, weapons companies, just some of the most atrocious companies. Our, our, our pension money is being used to invest in these companies. So we're all complicit in all these atrocities that are going on uh, with all these companies and uh, uh, companies like uh, you know Toronto Dominion, uh, uh, Royal Bank. Uh, they've often uh, 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 significantly uh, played a role. In oppressing uh, uh, Latin America, the Third World, uh, their financial interests are very strongly linked uh, in terms of controlling the 
resources of, of those countries. And uh, Eve Zangler actually does a great job in his book, The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, about actually documenting, going back all the way to the early 1900s and talking about uh, how, uh, you know, Canada, uh, Canadian banks had, you know, a role in Latin America in terms of suppressing any form of uh, ability for Latin Americans to take control of their own resources. And, uh, and, and but we don't actually explore that in this docuseries, but we do talk about one of the most interesting revelations is the Canadian pension plan and how our, and we, and we list out all these, uh, you know, profit maximizing corporations where our money's been invested. And, and we also link to, I didn't mention this, but it's also very important, uh, Canada's involvement in supporting Indonesia's invasion and occupation of East Timor. And that was a huge, uh, uh, Canada saw Indonesia as a significant uh, a partner in the global south, a significant uh, uh, uh source for investment uh, for Canada's development money to go into because, uh, you know, uh, Canada had mining interests in, in Indonesia. And so it did not bode well for Pierre Trudeau, who was, the, the, uh, who was Canada's leader at the time, to take a critical stance towards Indonesia's occupation of East Timor. So Canada supplied weapons to Indonesia Canada consistently rejected efforts, diplomatic efforts for uh, calling for Indonesia's withdrawal uh, 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 from East Timor and uh, a quarter of the population, Indonesia had slaughtered a quarter of the population, the worst atrocity post-World War II. And Canada was fully supportive of that, you know, right up until the very end in uh, the early 2000s. Yeah, just blood, brutal, bloody, bloody, uh... Um, situation. Um, folks, you've been listening to uh, Pitasana, uh, Sh- uh, Sean McGothis, who's made a who's made a docu series called "Truth to Powerlessness: An Investigation into Canada's Foreign Policy." Uh, we'll actually have in the show notes. We'll actually have links to the to the docu series. Um, if you like what you're hearing, check us out on. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. Uh, and if you want to make a donation, go to greenredpodcast.org and hit the support button or check us out on Patreon at patreon.com uh, backslash greenredpodcast. Uh, Pete Sana, it's been great talking with you today. Um, this has been this pretty important work that you've done and we're very flattered that you uh, made contact with us and, and allowed us to like put this, on, put this out to our audience. So uh, much appreciation. Thanks again for having me. I'm honored to be on your show. You guys uh, discuss very important issues. So thanks again for having me. Yeah. And everyone else out there, uh, make trouble and misbehave. And we'll talk to you again soon.